This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 19th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Over the past few years, qualified immunity has become a defining issue in criminal justice reform, and the issue is not going away. It's a wholly invented judicial doctrine that, for the moment, neither the Supreme Court nor Congress wants to change. Cato's Clark Neely reminds us why giving up on ending qualified immunity is simply not an option. He spoke at the Cato Club meeting in October. You know, when Cato launched its campaign to eliminate qualified immunity four years ago, nobody was talking about it. Qualified immunity was an obscure legal term relevant only to ivory tower law professors and policy wonks. Now everybody's talking about it. On Capitol Hill, in state legislatures, in gubernatorial debates, and on the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today. Qualified immunity has become one of the defining issues in criminal justice reform. So what did we at Cato see four years ago that nobody else did? One word, accountability. Anybody who has ever been a parent, a manager, or the owner of a business understands that you have to have accountability. Without accountability, there can be no trust, no confidence. Lack of accountability is a recipe for failure. It's that simple. When it comes to police and other government officials, Congress chose a policy of robust accountability. And it chose that policy 150 years ago in the wake of the Civil War when Jim Crow was rearing its ugly head in the South and government officials were not just failing to protect the rights of newly freed African-Americans and their white supporters, it was running roughshod over those rights. Congress saw this, it understood the implications, and it enacted what was then called the Ku Klux Klan Act in 1871. We refer to it today by its more colloquial name, Section 1983. That's where it appears in the United States Code. It's very simple as a matter of policy, and it hasn't changed in 150 years, and here's what it says. Any state actor, that means anybody who's employed by a state or local government, any state actor shall be liable to the person injured for the deprivation of any right. And this is going to be really important in about five seconds, so I'm going to repeat it. The congressionally chosen policy of this country, chosen in the wake of the Civil War, during the predations of the Jim Crow South, to protect individual rights is as follows. Any state actor shall be liable to the person injured for the deprivation of any right. Well, guess what? The Supreme Court disagreed. The Supreme Court felt that we should have a different policy of accountability in this country. And in a 1982 case called Harlow v. Fitzgerald, in an act of blatant judicial policymaking, the Supreme Court judicially amended Section 1983. And it did so by inserting two words into the statute. So now, it's not enough that you've suffered the deprivation of a right. In order to be a civil rights plaintiff in a Section 1983 case, you have to show that you have suffered the deprivation of a clearly established right. Clearly established. Those are two words that do not appear in the statute and were put there by the Supreme Court in what purports to be an interpretation of the statute and is nothing of the kind. It's a blatant act of judicial policymaking that 
I would remind some of our friends, is supposed to offend you if you are a conservative who believes that the role of the judiciary is to interpret the law and not make it. This law was made, and it was made by the Supreme Court. The significance of the term clearly established, which again was inserted into the congressionally chosen policy by the Supreme Court, is as follows. Now, in order to be a plaintiff in a Section 1983 case, it's not enough that you show that your rights were violated. You actually have to be able to identify a pre-existing case in the jurisdiction with nearly identical facts. And if you can't find that case, if that case doesn't exist, you will be thrown out of court, even if everybody agrees that your rights were violated by that police officer or other government official. That doesn't matter. What matters is whether you can find a pre-existing case with the same facts. Am I exaggerating? No. I could stand up here all day and give you dozens of examples that show that I'm not exaggerating, but let's just suffice with two. Here's the first one. Uh, both of these cases, by the way, uh, went up to the U.S. Supreme Court last term um, on petitions for certiorari. The first one uh, is out of California. It's a case called Jessup versus City of Fresno. What happened in Jessup is that a police officer was executing a search warrant in a private home. The home happened to belong to somebody who is a coin collector. Police officer noticed about $225,000 in cash and gold coins in his room, picked them up, put them in his pocket, and walked out of the house. Didn't check him into the evidence. There was no allegation that they were somehow part of the investigation. He just stole them. The homeowner sued. The Ninth Circuit granted qualified immunity. That means the Ninth Circuit threw the case out. And here's what the Ninth Circuit said. Look, we may all understand that stealing is wrong. We get that. But we don't have a case here in the Ninth Circuit that tells police officers that they can't steal your property while executing a search warrant in your house. And so it's not right that the police officer did this, but neither can you hold this officer liable for doing it because qualified immunity. Second case, a um, woman named Melanie Kelsey took her daughters to a public swimming pool in Nebraska with her boyfriend. They were horsing around in the shallow end. Somebody misinterpreted it, called the police. Police show up. They get Melanie Kelsey and her boyfriend out of the pool, separate them, ask what's going on, and she assures them it's a misunderstanding. We're just messing around. At this point, she looks over and she notices that one of the other patrons is hassling one of her daughters. And so she says to the officer, uh, I need to go help my daughter. I'll be right back. And he says, no, you need to stay here and talk to me. You're not going anywhere. Now, keep something in mind here. She's not the purported perpetrator. She's the purported victim. She's about five feet tall and wearing a bathing suit, not armed. So she says, I will talk to you, but I need to go help my daughter. And she turns away and begins to walk away, whereupon the officer <clears throat> chases after her, wraps her up in a bear hug, lifts her up off the ground, turns her upside down, and slams her into the ground so hard that he knocks her unconscious and breaks her shoulder. She sues. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals grants qualified immunity. Again, not because that was okay, but because there doesn't happen to be a case in the Eighth Circuit where a police officer did that same thing to somebody else. So he gets qualified immunity. Now, you might think I've cherry-picked these cases and that they're somehow extraordinary, and I assure you that they're not. This is not the exception. This is how qualified immunity was designed to work. How do we know that? Well, among other things, Remember I said that these two cases got to the U.S. Supreme Court last term? The Supreme Court denied cert on these two cases and a dozen others with equally harrowing facts and allowed to stand 
The lower court rulings granting qualified immunity to the police officers who engaged in this uh, astonishingly uh, illegitimate behavior. This is not a perversion of qualified immunity. This is qualified immunity. The result is a huge double standard. And <clears throat> it's a double standard in the way that the standard that we're held to by members of law enforcement, police and prosecutors. By the way, ignorance of the law really isn't an excuse. And you really can be convicted and, and imprisoned for doing something you didn't even know was illegal. That happens. But when the accountability shoe is on the other foot and they're accused of doing something wrong, then it's a completely different standard. And you can't hold them accountable unless you can show that there was a court case already on point with nearly identical facts. And if you can't show that, you're out of luck. That is a massive double standard, and it's an illegitimate double standard. In August of last year, public confidence in police reached the lowest point that it has ever reached in this country. It's come up a little bit since then, but not much. And I believe that a, a driving factor of this loss of public confidence in police is the recognition that there is a double standard. They are not held to the same standard as we are. And you know what? They shouldn't be. They should actually be held to a higher standard. They signed up for that job, and they're supposed to know the law, not like ordinary citizens. People who perceive police to be fundamentally unaccountable, accurately, I might add, will not trust police. They will not help police. And without that help, police cannot do their job. We have some of the lowest clearance rates of any developed country for things like homicide and other violent crimes. Clearance simply means when they make an arrest. The clearance rate for homicide in this country is about 61%, and in most big cities, it's less than 50%. you imagine that? In this country, in America today, if you commit a murder in most cities, there's a better than 50% chance that you're going to get away with it. And a big part of the reason for that is because people don't talk to police because they don't trust them. They don't trust them because they know that they're held to a different standard, and they are not accountable. And that's unacceptable. You know, something we libertarians understand that so few, so few people do is that in the words of the great Thomas Sowell, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Everything comes with a cost. Increase taxes, decrease productivity. Increase the minimum wage, kill jobs. Diminish accountability of government officials, you're going to have a loss of public confidence in the system. Have we had that in the last few years? Anybody perceive a loss of confidence in the criminal justice system in the public? I hope you do. You should, because it's there. When you destroy people's confidence in the system, they become cynical, self-regarding, and indifferent. And I've seen that as well. You have to have accountability. Now, here's the good news. There's a better way. And guess what? It's the way that was chosen by Congress. It's the way that was chosen by the founders of this country. And it's the way that is going to be the policy when Cato succeeds at getting rid of qualified immunity. And it's this. When a government official is plausibly accused of violating somebody's rights, we don't leave it up to a bunch of other government officials who happen to wear robes to decide whether that person should be liable to the person they hurt. We leave it up to a group of ordinary citizens sitting together to make that judgment. And do you know what we call that? We call it a jury. We call it a jury, and it's one of the centerpieces of our Constitution. And one of the things that makes America 
different from almost any other country in the world, we get to pass judgment on them, the government officials who are sworn to protect and respect our rights. And when they fail to do so, we get to decide whether they should be held liable, not some other bunch of government officials. And that's where things are going to be when we succeed in this campaign. Thanks so much. Clark Neely is Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.